So that was a long passage. We should probably like give a round of applause for her for, for reading that. Uh, but <laughs> but there's, there's so many lessons to learn from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we could approach it in a lot of different ways. But what we're going to do is we're going to like do a drive-by of like all the different characters in the story. And we're going to try and just observe what can we learn from each of the characters in the story. Um, so, so up first are the angels. And if you guys remember from last week, the, so these are the first characters we see in the story. If you rewind, you'll remember that Abraham was interacting with three travelers last week in Genesis 18. And one of those was the Lord, and the other two were angels. They were traveling towards Sodom in order to see if the, if the city is as guilty uh, as the outcry against it. So fast forward to this chapter. The angels show up. They show up in, in the city in the evening, and who's there? Lot is there, Abraham's nephew. He sees them, and he offers them some hospitality. There's a little back and forth, negotiation. We want to stay in the city square, Lot's like, no, you're staying with me. And they eventually agree, he wears them down. But before they could go to sleep, they would encounter the wickedness that they, were, that had, that they had heard about. Uh, the darkness of Sodom during the following events, they would, have to, they would have to intervene multiple times in order to save Lot. They pulled him into the house, shut the door, struck the men with blindness. Uh, they give multiple warnings for Lot and his family to get out of town before it gets destroyed. And then finally, they physically pull him out. They physically get Lot out of the city in an act of grace. So the angel's role in all this is to prepare the way for God's righteous judgment for Sodom and the other cities of the valley. Many people pit God's love and God's justice against each other, unnecessarily. Because uh, rightly understood, God is love, and everything else about him is a manifestation of love. So his judgment is a manifestation of his love, his love for those who've been sinned against. I was gonna go way more into detail about that, but we don't have time, so... The next characters on the list, the men of Sodom. The men of Sodom. Sodom is a messed up place. It's wicked. There's essentially zero redeeming qualities about this place, and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, The breadth of the depravity going on in this place, it extends to, in verse 4 it says, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population, the whole population, surrounding Lot's house, saying, we want to have sex with these angels. This is a messed up place. What it shows us is, unlike what Abraham requested, that God would show mercy if there were ten righteous people, this shows us that there are not ten righteous people in Sodom. And outside of Lot's house, there's zero righteous people. And inside the house, Lot and his family, they're called righteous but you would have to basically, you'd have to call their righteousness like barely, like questionable at best. Um, so not, not only was this whole city unrighteous, but their sin was also high-handed. It was, um, so there's a reality that some people, many of us, that 
we fall into sin. We struggle with sin. We're trying to pursue good, but we do what we don't want to do, right? We fall into sin. There's another reality of running into sin, and that would categorize, that would, that would describe what's going on in Sodom. These people are running into sin. The breadth of, of Sodom's sin was the whole city. The depth was total rebellion. It's as if this place is running into and rejoicing in their sin with their middle fingers up to God. But that's all generalized. What exactly is going on? What exactly is the sin that warrants this judgment? So here's the question. What is Sodom's sin? And that's not a totally straightforward answer. <laughs> Has multiple components for sure. We know that we know from other places in scripture and th- just from basic observation that there is a lack of hospitality, a lack of caring for those who, who are needy uh, or vulnerable. There's an attitude of abuse, uh, self-seeking gratification, and those things are acknowledged in passages in Ezekiel. There are some other passages that talk about the sins of Sodom, but the primary view, the primary sin in view here for sure is sexual immorality. It's their sexual sin. So sexual immorality is at the core of the sin of Sodom. Even amongst many wicked things, sexual sin specifically homosexuality, is referred to as an abomination throughout Scripture. Um, And it is at the core of what's going on here in Sodom. So here's a question. Is homosexuality specifically being condemned here, or is it just wickedness in general, a generalized Sodom's a messed up place? I just want to make the case here, I guess. Um, Moses Moses is conveying that sexual sin, this particular sexual sin is, is particularly wicked. Some people look at it and they, they would look at this situation and they would see a bunch of people surrounding a house saying we want to have sex with these visitors and they say, okay, it's more than homosexuality. That is a lot more. Maybe it's the violence, the violent nature of what they're trying to do. Gang, rape, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, Yet, the language that's used here is different than language of other violent uh, sexual acts that take place, such as with Dinah later in Genesis. And I think that shows that the focal point of this sin isn't the violent nature of it or the abuse, though it is abusive. And then moving on in Jude 7, sheds some more light on this, says, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So in the CSB, it says perversions. In the ESV, it says pursuing unnatural desire. And some people might make the case that this perversion or unnatural desire would be the fact that they want to sleep with angels. That's unnatural, right? That's for sure unnatural. But this verse also says that the sin of Sodom was also the sin of the whole region. So Gomorrah and the other cities of the valley would be known for this sin as well. But the angels only visited Sodom. So the thing that's being referred to, the unnatural desire that's being referred to, can't just be that they wanted to sleep with angels. Something else is in view here. 
And so the focal point of Sodom's sin, as described by Moses, is homosexuality. That's like right at the center of what's going on. It's more than homosexuality, to be sure. But the consistent representation of this sin presented in Scripture is that it's the antithesis of the created order. It's life turned in on itself. Romans 1, Paul adds to this. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received their, in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. So, like, I, I recognize that I'm stepping into the danger zone talking about this, um, talking about homosexuality when less than a week ago we were in Pride Month, um, or less than two weeks ago. And I read a, I read a tweet a few weeks ago talking about Pride Month, and, th- and that tweet was listing all the days that are dedicated unofficially or officially to celebrating sexual identity in some way. And according to that list, over half our calendars in America are unofficially dedicated to that cause. We live in a culture that is saturated with the glorification of what the Bible condemns. And many churches, many Christians, are hedging on this issue. They're not standing firm in what the Bible says fairly clearly. Um, And they're embracing homosexuality as natural, something to be celebrated. And I know for a fact that what you're hearing right now goes against the grain of everything that you're hearing outside of here, through media, through friends, coworkers, neighbors, certainly college professors. For some of you, this is not really controversial. I see some heads nodding even as I, as I speak. But for many of you, especially for those of you who are younger, this is really difficult. This is really tough. This is like the issue of our time. And so many people in this room, you have family, you have friends, you have coworkers who are living a life uh, in homosexuality. And this passage, what you read in, in this passage about Sodom, it seems very different than like what you could observe in their life. Like, so we're, we're not just talking about homosexuality. There is like a certain distinction that can be made. Like that does not exactly equate one-to-one. However, as uncomfortable as it may make us today, what we can't escape is that the, the, the particular sin at the center of what makes Sodom so wicked is homosexuality. And you might be asking, what makes it so bad? Homosexuality in Scripture is presented as the most obvious manifestation of inverting God's design. So be fruitful and multiply. That cannot happen through homosexuality. It represents turning in on oneself, living for self-gratification instead of for God. You can do that outside of homosexuality for sure. But it's impossible to glorify God through that pursuit. Second Peter 2, 7 describes that the primary distress 
that Lot was facing in Sodom was due to the sensual conduct of the wicked. Of all the bad things that's going on, the sensual conduct was what made it most difficult for, for Lot in Sodom. It's at the core of what makes Sodom the standard of wickedness that the rest of the Bible will proceed to measure against. Sodom is that standard, and it's because of this. So there's way more to be said on this topic. We don't have enough time. I'm not a psychologist. I don't understand all the intricacies of how this works out on the level of desire or brain chemistry or anything. There are a lot of people who have a lot more to say about this than I do. But it would be wrong of me to come up here, preach this text, and not address the blatantly obvious issue of Sodom. And before we move on to the next characters, uh, I want to point out just a few extra details that highlight their depravity. Okay? So I'll just list them off real quick. One, these men were shameless in what they wanted to do. They did not try and hide what they were doing. They said, come out, let them come out so we can have sex with them. And not only that, they were, they were actually offended by Lot's attempt to substitute his daughters. First off, that's messed up um, for the angels. But they didn't even care about the daughters. Their attention just was directed at Lot. They were offended that somebody would exercise judgment over them. And so they said, we're going to do worse to you than we did to them, that we're going to do to them which is kind of the second point. They acknowledged that their intentions were bad. And then third thing, after being struck with supernatural blindness, they wore themselves out groping for the door. So the blindness, you might think, would put an end to it. If you're in their shoes, hopefully none of us are ever in their shoes, <laughs> maybe you get struck with supernatural blindness, maybe you think, I should probably stop at this point. Uh, but no, they still, they are dead set on carrying out their evil intentions on Lot. They don't care about right or wrong anymore. And so this place, this place is a picture of humanity that is ready for judgment. So this is a place that is about to receive their judgment. And so the next characters are the sons-in-law. And I, I just want to point out that the sons-in-law in Sodom would be part of this group of men. They would have been there. Um, they would have been part of the group surrounding that house. And yet, what you see is that God extends a gracious offer. He's so patient uh, and warns them to get out of the city. He was willing to allow them to get out because, they, because of their association with Lot, but even, even after witnessing all this stuff, they can't take it seriously. They take it as a joke. Lot goes to them, he warns them, we gotta get out of the city, and they laugh, and they laugh. I think that says something about cultures and people. They can get to a certain point where life becomes so much about the pursuit of entertainment or consumption or just self-gratification that whole societies uh, can lose the ability to take things seriously. And I think all of us probably know some people who would simply laugh if we were to talk about God, Jesus, heaven, hell with them. They laugh 
at an offer of grace they can't even comprehend. There's also Lot's daughters, but I'm skipping that because they have more of a main role in next week's passage. And then there's Lot's wife. So a lot of you, when you guys think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe the most vivid image you think of is Lot's wife. And in this text, she's really only in here, she's really only mentioned for the purpose of of, of showing a disobedience to this warning that an angel gives her. Angel says, don't look back at the city. As she's running away from the city, the angel says, don't look back or you'll be swept away is what it says. And what this is getting at, this is much more than merely looking back at a city being destroyed. This is representative of of something deeper. Uh, She represents the failure to leave behind the world uh, when Christ calls you to himself. So the shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35. Does anyone know it? Jesus wept. One of my favorite memory verses. It always makes me feel smart. The second shortest is Luke 17.32, which says, remember Lot's wife. Words from Jesus, three words of warning. And what do we learn from Lot's wife? It's a warning that we're going to receive the judgment of wherever we identify with or whoever we identify with. Lot's wife was leaving the city of Sodom, but her heart stayed back there. And if, uh, so if we identify with the world, like Lot's wife, we'll receive the judgment of the world. But if we identify with Christ, we're going to receive his righteousness. So Lot's, wife, uh, Lot's wife's heart still dwelled in Sodom, and that was exposed in her inability to leave it behind. She's holding on. So what, do we, what should we do? We should align our affections, not just our actions, our affections with what God says, not just view them as rules to follow. We should not love the things that he despises. We need to leave the passions of the world behind and listen to this warning of Lot's wife. And then there's Lot. What can we learn from Lot in his story? What a mixed bag. You look at him, you're going to question just about everything that he does. All these actions, this is just like, who is this guy? And yet, the New Testament calls Lot righteous multiple times. It calls him righteous. And what you see here is that Lot is, is like he's clearly differentiated from the rest of Sodom in the passage. And there are, there are some good qualities about Lot. So here are some of his, some of his good qualities. Lot shows hospitality, though not to the same extent of Abraham. If you were to compare Lot and Abraham in a lot of ways, I'd love to go through that sometime, but we don't have time. Um, He does show hospitality. He demonstrates moral judgment that refuses to embrace the wickedness of the people around him in Sodom. So he differentiates himself in that way. He takes action uh, by warning his sons-in-law of the coming destruction. He doesn't just sit back and, and wait. He actually does something. And unlike his wife, he doesn't look back when he's fleeing the city. And so he's saved. He's saved, and he's called righteous. However, there's a lot of bad qualities of Lot. 
For one, he values the visitor's safety over his own daughter's. Like valuing the visitor's safety, that's great. But throwing your daughters to be used and abused by an entire city, I would not say that's the lesser of two evils. I think that's a false decision. I, I, he should have stood his ground. It's a tragic decision to do that. And though there wasn't any immediate consequences, I think there's some upcoming consequences from that decision. Uh, he lived a compromised life in general, so he compromised there when he shouldn't have. But his life in general was basically defined by compromise. If you, if you were to just get checkpoints on, on Lot from when we were introduced to him in Genesis 12, this is what it would look like. Genesis 12, Lot is with Abram. Representative closeness to God, he's with Abram. Genesis 13, it says that he moves, when they split up, he moves near the cities of Sodom, the cities of the valley, and he's living in tents. Genesis 14, it says that now he's in Sodom. So you see the progression here. And then Genesis 19, this chapter, it says that he's sitting in the city gate, which shows that he's now in a position of prominence in this city. He has really fully embraced the lifestyle that Sodom offers. He's caught up in the world. That's what's going on here. He's really living a life of compromise. Um, some other negative things. He lingers upon being warned to flee the city and then even upon, in, in fleeing, in the middle of his rescue, he still desires to live in a similar place. They say go to the mountains. He says, ah, I don't want to go to the mountains. Can I go to this little Sodom? Zoar, that's what it's called. Um, which would go on to escape the fate of the other cities of the valley, which is an interesting thing that maybe you could study sometime. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And if there's anybody who fits the description of this verse in all of Scripture, it's Lot. So at the end of the day, though it's messy, his life is so messy, he's still counted as righteous before God. And he's saved. So we should praise God for the patience that he shows Lot because that's the same patience that he shows to us. We should not look at Lot and be crossing our arms in judgment we should look at Lot and we should see ourselves in a lot of ways. And then there's Abraham. Shows up at the very end of this passage. He's tra he travels back to the same place that he was pleading for Sodom a few days before, or actually just the day before. Um, and he gets there and what does he see? He sees smoke like a furnace rising up from the destruction of this entire region so what does that say? Well, it would say that he would have to conclude that God's promises will always be fulfilled, even his promises of judgment. There weren't ten righteous people, so God kept his promise. But I also want to point out verse 29 here, which is kind of acting like a summary verse of everything that just went down. It says this, So it was, when God destroyed the cities on the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. 
And this language of God remembering Abraham, that's covenantal language. That's covenantal language. Meaning, uh, if you go back to Genesis 8, 8 8.1 says God remembered Noah. Which is actually the emphatic verse in the entire story of the flood. God remembered Noah. And it's the same word that's going to be used at the beginning of Exodus um, when he remembers his people and his covenant and then moves into action to set his people free from Egypt. Covenantal language is where God is basically, God's actions to save uh, come from his promises. And so what's amazing here, what I just want to point out, is that it does not say God remembered Lot and therefore saved Lot. He said God remembered Abraham and then Lot was saved. So it's not due to the righteousness of Lot, but to the promise of Abraham. That was enough to save Lot. The intercession of Abraham, the family tie, the Lot's salvation, it's tied to Abraham. He's the bearer of God's covenant, and just as 10 people, 10 righteous people would have been enough to save a whole city, similarly, Abraham is enough to save his nephew. Um, at least in this sense. And this is where the eighth kind of secret character comes in, right? And this is Christ. This is where you see a shadow of Jesus who's gonna show up 2,000 years later. He enters into the story. He enters into a broken world, and like Abraham, he's the new bearer of God's covenant that saves and blesses. And just as Lot is pulled out of Sodom and escape, uh, to escape destruction, so are we snatched from the fire of the coming judgment for us and the whole world. And we're snatched from the outstretched hands of Christ himself. We are saved from that same destruction. I know you've probably made a bunch of connections of what's going on in Sodom and then what's going on in our world today. Like, Sodom was totally wicked. That's messed up. But we live in in a world that there are all sorts of horrible things happening every single day. It's not like it's that much different. And that's because the truth is that this whole world is guilty. All of us in here, guilty. Outside of Christ, we deserve the same judgment that Sodom got. And yet, we're offered escape through Christ as he pulls us out, he gives us his righteousness, and he takes the weight of our sin on the cross. Sodom is a picture of your fate outside of Jesus' intervention in your life. And so here's the application. When you look at this whole story, what you see is a story of judgment and a story of salvation. The story of Sodom's destruction serves exclusively for the rest of the Bible as a warning to all people. But the mistake that we can make in looking at this is by making it about people out there instead of like hearing it as a warning to us. So I just wanna warn against that. Don't just cross your arms in superiority to the world. That's not what this passage is about. Judges 19, we're in Genesis 19. Well, Judges 19 is a direct parallel with everything that's going on here where something very similar to this happens. It's horrible. but this time it's happening in the tribe of Benjamin, which is part of God's people. 
I think the point being made is that all the wickedness of the world, it's in Israel now. The whole point is that um, we should not think that we are incapable of this corruption. We're not immune to the things going on here. We should be self-examining. Uh, we're not like immune to this because we go to church, right? Because we do religious things. So look at the warnings and actually examine your own heart in these, in these warnings. Are you like the men of Sodom? who are obsessed with this world and opposed to God? Are you like Lot's sons-in-law who are completely apathetic and dismissive of the gracious warnings of judgment? Are you like Lot's wife? Are you in love with this world and unwilling to let go of something? Or are you like Lot, though he's called righteous, uh, but he's making life difficult for himself? Are you making life difficult for your, yourself through years of compromise? And Jesus gives us a strong warning in Matthew 11 where he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And so the warning of Sodom should not be reduced to a simple story of what happens when you mess with sexual sin, though that's true, it should be a warning of that. Sodom's a reminder of, of something bigger, of the destructive fate for all of us outside of the intervening cr grace of Christ. So what's the solution to all of this? The solution here, for if you resonate with any of those characters and what they're struggling with, the solution in large part, is basically the same. Repent and find your life in Christ. Repent and find your life in Christ. And maybe more specifically, understand where your true home is. If you were making a side-by-side -side comparison of Lot and Abraham, what is the thing that differentiates Abraham? I think you could most easily, in this case, say that Abraham understood where his true home was. He was the recipient of God's promise to be a great nation, and yet he lived in a tent. So he had the spirit of somebody who was traveling through this world. He didn't settle down. He understood where his true citizenship was. It was with God. Lot's family, they made the, made the mistake of settling down, getting comfortable, and loving the prosperity of this world. They identified with it in many ways. So the same danger that existed for them exists for us today. But for all of us, I just wanna give you guys this encouragement. Jesus is ready to take you by the hand and save you, but you have to run with him. Let's pray.